June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We've all agreed on a pause or a ceasefire in the border region of Syria. And it was unconventional what I did. I said, they're going to have to fight a little while. Sometimes you have to let them fight a little while. With the U.S. troop movement from Syria, we began a heated discussion here at home about U.S. policy and military strategy there and across the broader Mideast. A political debate here at home in which the president asserted his view he wanted to get the U.S. out of what he labeled endless wars. We want to bring our troops back home. And I got elected on that. If you go back and look at our speeches, I would say we want to bring our troops back home from these endless wars. And we're like a police force over there. We're policing. We're not fighting. We're policing. We're not a police force. His critics, including some Republicans, questioning the approach and the timing. But, but the reality is the decision was made uh, by this administration, which has led to the Turks going in to Syria and wiping out our friends, the, the Kurds. That's what's unacceptable. In the letter to where the president sent to um, Erdogan, no, he's warning him not to do this. The president got a recommendation from the general of the Joint Chief to remove a number of troops because what was coming, that Americans would be in harm's way. In a first cut at what the public thought of all of this, our CBS News poll, taken right after the president's decision was announced, found that sizable numbers at the time, 41%, simply couldn't say enough about it to weigh in. Now, that's not unusual for complicated geopolitical or military matters, certainly not unusual for one that hadn't been atop the news beforehand, or, in this case, for one which there wasn't a clear set of partisan cues. But that also spotlights the need now for clarity on the subject. The good news is, I think we can get it. Welcome to the podcast. I am Anthony Salvanto, and this is Where Did You Get This Number? That 41%, that is our big number for this week. And here we're going to guide you through the military implications of what we're seeing and get the view from none other than David Martin at the Pentagon. Find out how the military goes about evaluating what is going on and more broadly, how they gauge threats to the U.S. both long and the short term. This is a good one. Stay tuned. David Martin, CBS News' national security correspondent, really needs no introduction to our listeners and viewers. For my money, he is the Pentagon correspondent. He's been there through many administrations, gives us not only the details of what's going on now, but also the context. David, real real honor to have you on, and, uh, and thank you very much. Well, thank you. So let me start with this, David. When we polled on the decision to remove U.S. troops from Syria last week, we got a large number saying that they hadn't heard enough or didn't know enough about it to say. That was 41%. It was larger than the number that approved, larger number than the number that disapproved. And it's a reminder to us that keeping up with military and geo 
geopolitical threats and assessments is hard for the general public to do. That's why it's left to experts. I wanted you to help us understand not just the recent controversy over the U.S. troops, but first for background, from a military standpoint, how and why is it that the Syria-Turkish border region is or was considered strategically important to the United States? And what specific metrics are used to make that assessment? Well, that Syria border region was important to the U.S. for one reason and one reason only. It was being used as a base for the campaign against ISIS. The only reason it objected to the Turks coming into Syria was that the Turks were going to go after the same Kurdish fighters who were helping the U.S. in the campaign against ISIS. And if the Kurds had to turn around and defend themselves against the Turks, then the campaign against ISIS would collapse. If the campaign against ISIS collapsed, there was no need for American troops any longer in Syria, hence the withdrawal order. David, let me pick up on assessing the threat from ISIS and the levels of activity that ISIS was presenting in the region. How is it that the Pentagon assesses that and how is it that we were, what, what was our level of either defeat or still combating ISIS activity? Well, the way the uh, Pentagon describes it is that ISIS has been defeated, but it has not been destroyed. In other words, it has lost all the territory it once held in Syria, which was a considerable portion, somewhere between a quarter and a third of the country but it has not lost all its fighters. You, you start dealing with very fuzzy intelligence estimates of how many ISIS fighters are still out there. And I've never put much stock in the accuracy of those estimates, but they run in the thousands of ISIS fighters. Was a lot of the intelligence that drives those assessments coming out of the military bases and the troop presence that the U.S. had on the border and in the region? There's no substitute for having boots on the ground, for being up near the front lines. That's where you get the best intelligence. And a lot of the intelligence that the U.S. gets on groups like ISIS comes off captured cell phones, captured computers, and, and social media. If you're not on the ground, if you're only, say, conducting airstrikes, then you're only destroying things. You're not uh, collecting intelligence. So help us look forward here now. Under the ceasefire, as we talk, obviously there are reports the fighting uh, is continuing as we speak. You know, reports are that the, the Pentagon officials don't know what happens next necessarily with the displaced Kurds if they have to move south as part of you know, what constitutes the ceasefire deal. How does the Pentagon go about planning and assessing the impact of that uncertainty of the movements of, of large numbers of people and what kinds of scenarios are they now evaluating going forward? Ceasefires do not have a very encouraging history in Syria. They are declared all the time and they are broken all the time. They are declared for political purposes and when one side uh, no longer has an interest in that political purpose, they are broken. So I don't think anybody is putting great stock in how long this ceasefire will hold. 
and the Turkish president has said he intends to uh, get out of uh, Syria. He doesn't want to stay there. He has said that about other incursions into other parts of Syria, and his troops are, are still in Syria, actually years after they, they first went in. So the U.S. military perspective on this is still, I think, just not to get caught in between the Turks and the Kurds. We're not going to defend the Kurds against the Turks. That decision has been made. The U.S. doesn't have the forces in Turkey to do it, and it just doesn't have any strategic interest in going to war with a NATO ally. So the U.S., I think, is still looking for the safest way out and the best way out, and the best way out is the one that gets the troops and their equipment out of there with the least risk. So we're caught between two allies, essentially. The troops caught are caught between, between two, two allies. allies, one of which we can afford to throw overboard, namely the Kurds, one of which we can't afford to throw overboard, namely the Turks. David, issues like this put a spotlight on how and why and the way in which the U.S. goes about evaluating threats, making military assessments of where U.S. troops need to be, maybe where they don't need to be, not just in the Middle East, but around the world. And, you know, we know in public opinion that, you know, as the president said, you know, as he puts it, uh, people are tired of fighting endless wars. And there's some, there's some in the polling that suggests that that's true in the sense of people don't want conflicts to go on for a long time. But at the same time, there's plenty of evidence that the U.S. is constantly engaged in a global struggle of, of, of some form or another. How is it that the Pentagon goes about assessing the range of threats around the globe that ranges from, you know, as asymmetric threats, terrorism, cyber warfare, all of that? Well, early in this administration, the Defense Department under then Defense Secretary James Mattis came up with a national defense strategy and it identified five threats to American national security, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. And that is a, a, a spectrum. Terrorism is an everyday problem. You have to stay on top of it every day to keep pressure on terrorists that are located everywhere from Afghanistan to uh, West Africa. And if they were left to their own devices, would begin plotting attacks against Americans. That's today's problem. Then you have the, the long-term problem of China and Russia. Neither China or Russia is plotting to attack us tomorrow. Uh, but we're in this strategic competition with them that really goes on for generations. Russia is largely regarded as a spent force. If it didn't have nuclear weapons, nobody would be paying much attention to Russia. China is the emerging power. Every Secretary of Defense, and there have been three now in the, uh, in the Trump administration, everyone says their number one priority is China, staying ahead of China. And that requires a military presence in the Pacific. But if, you're, if you have to send 2,000 troops to Syria, 
14,000 troops to Afghanistan, 5,000 troops to uh, Iraq, on and on. It gets harder and harder to sustain a uh, military presence in the Pacific, which the U.S. views as its number one priority. So the Pentagon is all for getting out of these wars as, as quickly as possible. They just don't want to pull out and then have a resurgence of the terrorists. And of course, the example they point to was the 2011 decision by the Obama administration against the advice of both military and intelligence advisors to pull all U.S. combat troops out of Iraq. And that now is regarded in retrospect as having contributed to the rise of ISIS, which has dominated now American national security policy for the last uh, four or five years. So there's a level of troop, there's a level of U.S. presence that serves as a deterrent to threats emerging, and that's true on a global scale. Well, you, you say deterrent, but uh, there's an irony there because the presence of a thousand American troops in Syria did not deter Turkey from coming into uh, northern Syria. Turkey knew that the U.S. wasn't going to fight. They could just basically roll on over us. The presence of American troops in Europe is a different uh, case because the Russians have to assume that the U.S. will fight there because those are NATO allies and we have commitments to defend those countries against a uh, threat from outside. But there's also a daily presence on the ground in which American special operations forces are going after terrorists on a daily basis. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that the U.S. had, had uh, killed a thousand Taliban fighters in the past ten days, and we know nothing. We know nothing about that. Those those strikes don't get reported, but that fighting is going on every day by special operations forces in places like Afghanistan. Well, you, something you said earlier struck me, staying ahead of China. The U.S. Is, is interested in staying ahead of China. What specifically constitutes staying ahead? Is it better technology, better military technology, more troop presence in strategic areas? How do they, how do they assess that? It's, it's primarily the, uh, the technological race right now. China has spent the last several decades watching the U.S. fight wars. And they know how the U.S. goes about it. They know, for instance, that U.S. operations are almost totally dependent on space for everything from surveillance to communications to guiding weapons to their targets. So they have spent the last several decades developing ways of taking out all those American satellites. And the U.S. now has to make sure that it can withstand a, a, a Chinese attack against all of its uh, space assets and still keep fighting. And that, that is a undertaking that consumes much of uh, this Pentagon's time and money. What about long-term changes 
uh, on a global scale like climate change. A couple of weeks ago, there was a lot of coverage of climate change. So what does rising sea levels do to the movement of people? What do, you know, resources and scarcity or droughts do to the movement of people? And does the Pentagon have long-term assessments or long-term plans to deal with the geopolitical, even the, the military implications of things like that? They, they view the uh, primary consequence of, of climate change as being an increase in the number of humanitarian operations that the U.S. might have to uh, undertake. The, uh, the U.S. military always ends up being the uh, rescue force of last resort. When a huge uh, disaster uh, strikes, like the earthquake in, in Haiti, only the U.S. military has... Uh, the industrial strength power to go in there with heavy equipment and and try to uh, save lives and and put a uh, society back together again. And it does the same thing after typhoons in in the Pacific and uh, earthquakes in Nepal. And so the consequences of climate change are that there are going to be more of those operations, and those operations suck up resources that you would otherwise have devoted to getting ready to fight and win a war. Finally, David, I wanted to ask you about your experience covering the Pentagon. You know, we in the U.S. get a lot of information from our military. We know a lot, often thanks to people like you, about what the Pentagon sees as as, uh, as risks, as threats, and, and what they're doing in terms of troop movements, et cetera. Is that usual around the globe? Is it usual for the for Western countries? Or are we somewhat unique in the amount of communication that the, the military provides? I, th- I think we are unique. I'm, I'm talking to you right now from my office in the Pentagon. I come here in the morning and... I go home from here at night. And if I'm not here, I'm on a military base. My access to the U.S. military is extraordinary compared to the kind of access that reporters in other countries have. I can roam around this building at will, running into people like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And you get, you get a brief chance to talk to them as they're rushing to and from meetings. And after a while, you just develop a sense for the rhythm of this building. It's, it's, a, it's made up of people, and you just get a, a, a sense for when something is going on uh, or when they feel they have, they have things under control. I don't know of another Ministry of Defense in the world that allows reporters that kind of access. And it's, I don't even know of another building in Washington that allows that kind of access. You don't have this kind of access at the White House. You don't have this kind of access at the State Department. You don't have this kind of access at the CIA. And I've always felt, it, all through the ups and downs of military press relations, that the Pentagon just had a self-confidence that it could let reporters basically inside the perimeter and still be able to uh, tell a story and, and tell it in a, a relatively straightforward way. Obviously, there's just a lot they 
uh, don't tell you because of classification. But we're here, and we get to ask questions every day. I'm going to close on that, because, and it's fascinating and uh, obviously an appreciated part uh, of a republic and a democracy. And so thank you, David. That is, that is just incredible stuff. And obviously, as we're seeing right now, um, incredibly important and something that everybody ought to pay more attention to uh, all the time, not just, uh, not just at times like this. Thank you, well, David. That's, that's what you pay beat reporters like me for, to pay attention all the time. <laughs> Indeed. And helpful to me as I try to gauge public opinion on this moving forward. Um, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Anthony. That will wrap the podcast for this week. We will keep an eye on that 41%, those folks who said they didn't know enough yet to say, I suspect that will change as events on the ground change, as this remains atop the news. We will follow it. It will probably go down. We'll also see how the partisan back and forth, including debate within the Republican Party, also shapes the views within and among the president's own supporters on this. In the meantime, I hope you have enjoyed this trip behind the numbers as much as I have. We will be back in a few days. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Give us a rating. Give us feedback. You can at us on Twitter at, at GetThisNumber with your questions on polling or politics or topics you would like us to tackle. In the meantime, let me thank, as always, my producer, Alan Pang, Maeve Burke, and everyone here at CBS News Radio who helps bring this to you. And most of all, let me thank you for listening. We'll talk soon.